Let's, uh, if you've got the legs that are able to allow you to stand, then let's stand together and just seek God as we turn our attention to his voice through his word. Lord, we are grateful that you've met with us um, in a special way this morning. You've been at work in our hearts, amongst us. Uh, you've drawn our affections towards Jesus in a special and renewed way. We've heard of hearts being turned towards you. We've heard of fears that have been overwhelmed by you. And Lord, we just pause again to say we love you. And as you speak to us through your word, Lord, allow our hearts to be soft under your voice. Give us a willingness, Lord, a willingness that isn't even of our own, uh, to step out in faith and obey what you've calling us to do this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you. Take a seat. We're continuing along in our uh, series through the Behold book. A couple of you have asked already, um, are we continuing this series through the holiday break? And yes, partly due to poor planning on my behalf, not to encapsulate this series inside of a school term when our small groups are meeting. Um, however, there are a number of small groups who have just said, hey, we're going to keep on meeting together so that we want to continue to keep in pace. Um, with the series, that's fantastic. Um, if not, and your group isn't meeting over the holiday period, then please, as individuals, keep up to pace in your Behold book as you're um, reading along and tracking with our series as well. All right. Um, we've heard a couple of people get up this morning, share from the microphone about a favourite verse that they've got. Um, I'm not sure about you, if you've got favourite verses. I think just about every time I get up to preach, I might say, this is one of my favourite verses, and it seems to be a different one every time. Um, this is one of my favourite verses. It's Isaiah 63 and 16. In fact, Isaiah is one of my favourite Old Testament books. Um, and this particular verse I love and return to often says this, for you are our father. Now, look at, look at what is said in this verse. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. I love that verse from Isaiah, which I think is a profound statement of acceptance and inclusion for those who feel abandoned. Can you see that in that verse? This is the, an Old Testament period of time where um, the inclusion of God's people was through Israel. And, and here the writer's saying, hey, listen, God, you are our father. And even though Abraham, the the forerunner of all that is God's purpose and chosen people, though Abraham doesn't know us, though Israel doesn't acknowledge us, you are our Father. You, O oh Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old. And we're going to think a little bit about the fact that God is Father. Maybe that's not earth-shattering news to you. 
If you've been around church for very long, if you've been around Christians for very long, if you've read your Bible very much at all, then the idea that we could talk to God and call him Father is not news. It it doesn't, at least my experience has been, we say the term Father when we're talking about God quite easily and without thinking about it very much. We, I think, take it for granted. But from ancient times, the idea that God, the one true living God over all of creation, over all of this universe, could be addressed with such a familiar term as the word Father would have been, and I think rightly so, shocking. That, that God, that we could address him and say to him, even as the New Testament writers instruct us, Abba, Father. A term of endearing, closeness, intimacy. Right? The, the wonder, the absolute wonder of the one true and living God. And he's known... He's known by many names. If you read throughout the Bible, he's known by many names. He's known by many attributes. He's known by many strengths. But how he delights to be known, how he loves for us to know him, is by this term, Father. It stands to reason then that because he is known to us as Father, it is just as true that we can be known as his children. In fact, I think it's that idea that caught my attention as I was reading through chapter 4 of the Behold book by our friend Justin Huffman when he said this. Maybe you read this as well. It's in chapter 4. He says, as we saw in the last chapter, God the Father spoke audibly from heaven in order to affirm Jesus as his son. How awesome to realize Jesus is just as intentional in publicly claiming those who are part of his family. This idea that we as God's creation can also be known as being part of God's family, is a central, central, pivotal idea in the big story of redemption that flows from cover to cover throughout the Bible. And I want to really sort of briefly survey that by going through four big themes in the story of redemption that you get from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible. Just in case you didn't realise... Although the Bible is made up of 66 separate books, they are, in fact, one story. The story of God who redeems his people. It is one great, big plan of redemption that unfolds over millennia. It goes from history past to eternity in the future. One way of looking at it is by using four terms. Creation, fall... Redemption and consummation, those four terms. They give us a big idea of the theme across 
this story of redemption. So let's have a quick think about how God is seen in those four areas of this story, particularly in the role of father. So it begins with creation. God birthed this world into being, called it into being. And you and I and all the other Adams and Eves that preceded us, they're the pinnacle of his work. Remember that story? His joy was full, wasn't it? As he looked on his creation each day, as he called light into being, as he called plants into being, as he called animals into being, and he got to the end of every day and he said, it is good. It's good. And then as he shaped the dirt and breathed life into this man, this Adam, and as he took the the bone and shaped a woman to stand with Adam. He looked at her and he said, this is very good. His joy was brought to completion. And I love the fact that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, this culmination of the father's joy as he was to walk with his children in the cool of the evening every day. To walk in the garden that he had placed them in just to be in communion with them, just to be in fellowship, to be in friendship, to be family, father and children together. That was creation. God in unbroken relationship with his children. We in unbroken relationship with our father, our creator. But then we get fall, don't we? It doesn't take us very long. We only get a couple of chapters into the story of redemption and already there is broken relationship. There is the fall. And our rebellion, which isn't just a rejection of God's lordship or God's kingship, but also we should understand the fall, the rebellion, as a breaking of family relationship. We reject God, not only as king, but we rejected him as our father. I think if you think of the story that Jesus told that we call the prodigal son, right? I think this illustrates this beautifully. A man who had two sons starts out with. And one son, because he desired his own autonomy, his own lordship, he he desired his own Um, rule over his life he wanted to take his inheritance and live it his way and so in a sense he says to his father I want my inheritance now now when do we normally receive an inheritance even in our days when do we normally receive an inheritance when the father dies right in a sense what he says dad I wish you were dead I want What you have now. There's a breaking, not only of lordship, of kingship, but there's a breaking of relationship. A breaking of this role of son to father, of child to father. There's good news at the end of that story. And there's good news to the story of creation, fall, redemption and consummation as well. So we should understand the fall in the sense of a breaking of relationship, not only a breaking of 
lordship. And yet even though we rebelled against God as our father, God yet remains a father. Even when the prodigal son took all that was his, or we thought was his, abandoning the relationship with father and runs away to a distant land, what do we know about that story? We know that that story, all the time that the son is in a distant land, we know that there's a story of a father who remains a father. And he remains standing on the porch and he remains staring down the road, waiting for his son. That's what happened in the fall as well. We might reject God as father in our life and yet God never stops being father. Still stands waiting for his children. Still pursues his children. Still looks to include and rescue his children. Look at how God speaks of his children who have rejected him. Wandered from him. And even those that he disciplines and who have experienced his discipline. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 20, you get a verse that says this, and it's a beautiful insight into how God's heart as a father operates. Jeremiah 31 and 20 says this, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel. Israel in this stage of when Jeremiah was prophesying, was wandering far from God's kingship and God as father in their life. They'd rejected God and his kingship, his lordship, and they rejected the relationship that God had made as a covenant with them. And here is God saying, is Ephraim my dear son? Yes, he is. Is he my darling child? Yes, he is. And God acknowledges, he says, even though I speak against him, even though there's discipline that needs to happen, even though I might be angry with him, I do remember him still, he says. And therefore my heart yearns for him. We can see in the story of the fall, a God who has been rejected as father and yet whose heart yearns for his children. He says, I'll have mercy on him. So we have the creation, we have fall, and then we have the story of redemption as it rolls to that act of redemption. As we saw in Isaiah, God is known as Father. But Isaiah also calls him by another name. Did you see it? An ancient name, he says. Our Redeemer from on old is how Isaiah refers to him. Okay, that's a beautiful name. God's, God's known by a lot of names in the Bible, but that's, that's one that we should really hold on to as being precious. Our Redeemer from on old. God's name reveals his character. And his name tells us that God is, by nature, a redeemer. God seeks to redeem and rescue and pay the price. That's who God is. He is our redeemer from an old, Isaiah says. And we probably can't get a more clear and more distinct picture of redemption more profoundly illustrated, I think, than in the work of his son, our saviour, the Christ, right? Galatians 3, 26 says, For in Christ Jesus 
you are all sons of God through faith. Get that? In Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God. In Christ Jesus, right? Through faith. By nature, we are not children of God. We've rebelled against His fatherhood. We, like the prodigal son at one point, every single one of us in this room, have said, I wish you were dead. I don't want you to be my father. I do, I do not want you to reign over me. I don't want you to be an authority in my life. I don't want a relationship with you. We've all done that. We all do that. By nature, we are not children of God. As his creatures, we have nothing in common with his divine being. But by the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, we have been integrated brought in, included into the life of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. It's because of the the presence of the Spirit in us now that we are able to approach the Father and have a relationship with Him. Paul went on to write in Galatians, we read Galatians 3 a moment ago, let me read to you from Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Paul says, and because you are sons or children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God has done a great work of redemption in this world, of rescue, of buying back that which was lost. And he has given us an incredible privilege to once again approach him as broken as we might still be in so many ways. To approach a holy and righteous God and call him Abba Father. That is a beautiful term of close relationship. There's a lot of people in this room and you know me in various capacities. Some of you know me by name only. Some of you know me only simply because you see me frequently standing here in front of you on a Sunday. Some of you know me better than that. Some of you might know me well enough that we might occasionally meet up for a cup of coffee or I might a cup of tea or go for a drive together or catch up for a meal together. Some of you know me in a professional sense, some of you know me in a relational sense, but there are a few people here in the room who sit over there, they know me as dad. Nobody else in the room. It would be weird, (laughs) all right? Don't try it as a social experiment. It will just be awkward. If you walk up to me, even if you don't try to embrace me, that will be weird. And call me dad. That would be strange. There are only a few people in this room who have the right and the privilege to do that. You have the right and the privilege to walk into the courts of heaven. Where there are angels that have been 
in God's presence for countless millennia who bow down and repeat, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They've done that from creation. They will do that through all eternity. There are heavenly beasts in heaven that we read some vague descriptions of and are just in wonder at. We think this is incredible. They are bowing down in in worship. You get to walk into the courts of heaven and say, Abba, Father. That's the right that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus through faith today. This is the story of redemption, creation, a God who birthed this world into being that walked in fellowship with us as his children, that we called our Father. And then there was the fall, a rejection of his fatherhood. Then there is redemption where in Christ we are gained again, once again, into the family of God. And consummation, where all things come to its grand conclusion. Which means that God is and will bring all things back together into perfect fullness once again. He will reign, he does reign for all eternity, not only as Lord, but once again in unbroken fellowship with his children as Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 says this, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's God's desired relationship. Father and children. 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are, John says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is our immense privilege that we will carry through all eternity. The children of God. That God is our father. All of this leads up to our key passage in chapter 4 of the book Behold that we've been reading. Called The True Family of Jesus. Just for fun and to illustrate a point, I'm going to read it to you from an old translation. At our Bible study group um, on Tuesday night, um, Billy, we were reading this passage around in, our, in the lounge room and, and Billy said, I'm going to read it out of Young's literal translation. <laughs> it's awesome. So I'm going to read to you from the Young's literal translation this morning. I think I might have it on the screen if it's working. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through to 50 is where we get the key passage from chapter 4 out of the Behold book. All right. While he was yet speaking to the multitudes, lo, his mother and brethren had stood without, seeking to speak to him. And one said to him, Lo, thy mother and thy brethren do stand without, seeking to speak to thee. And he answered, And he, answering, said to him who spake to him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? 
And having stretched forth his hand towards his disciples, he said, Lo, my mother and my brethren, for whoever may do the will of my Father who is in the heavens, he is my brother and sister and mother. Lo. We don't say that much. I do remember my grandfather, though, every time something happened that was a little bit surprising, or he loved telling stories, my grandfather, it's hereditary, um, my grandfather would tell wonderful stories. And every time the story had some type of twist, some of you may recognise this saying, lo and behold. You remember that? Lo and behold, who should turn up? Lo and It was always used as a place of both surprise, but also um, an exclamation point in the story to make you go, wow, look at that. All right? Lo and behold. It's interesting that the Young's literal translation, written in 1862, by the way, I looked that up, when Young wrote his translation, he uses the word lo in many of the places that he uses the word low in the ESV or more literal current translation, you will find the word behold. Low and behold. Who should be there when Jesus is ministering? Wow, his mum, biological mum, his brothers, his sisters, his family members, they turn up, right? So we might smile at the language of 1862. I think it does give us a good insight, though, into the idea of the word behold. Right? In certain generations, the word lo and the word behold are still paired together. When something surprising or unexpected happens, a once common statement would usually pop up in the conversation. Lo and behold... Right, this passage that we just read from Matthew, it asks us to stop and take notice of two things in particular. The first thing it wants us to take notice of, Young says, lo. ESV says, behold, his mother and brethren, his brothers and sisters, stood outside wanting to speak to him. Jesus' biological family are wanting to visit him while he's in the middle of a ministry trip. Jesus is flat out preaching, healing, he's doing stuff, he's going places. And behold, his mum and his family biologically turn up and they want to talk to him about something. They don't go in to see him himself. They get somebody else. Go tell Jesus, come and talk to us. Second thing that is shown in this passage that we should lo and behold about is that Jesus points to a ragtag bunch of followers and says, you want to see my family? Here is my family. And that should surprise us. That's why there's lo there. That's why there's behold there. What should we take from it? Here's what I want you to walk out with this morning, in a broad sense, and then we're going to sort of narrow in a couple of things about it. But here's the one thing that I want you to walk out the door with this morning. You matter to Jesus. You matter to him. You are significant to Jesus. 
Jesus stands with you, desiring, looking to call you brother or sister or mother, family, right? This is profoundly amazing news. Our culture, probably even more so in this time when it was written, Jesus' own culture, they would have read this story or heard about this story and expected Jesus to hear the news that his mum wants to talk with him and their expectation would have been, well, it's family, right? We still say that. We'll be talking about plans that we've got and then we'll say, you know, we had plans to go away, we had plans to do something. But then something occurred in my family and we go, what do you do? It's family. Right? That's the expectation, right? You, you change plans, you drop things, you do stuff because it's family. So the expectation in the story here is Jesus is busy, he's ministering and doing something important, but his mum turns up, his family turn up, and they want to see him. Jesus, change plans for us, please. We're here to see you. The expectation is Jesus would drop everything to go there. Jesus would stop whatever he's doing and saying, what are you going to do? It's family. And walk out and see his mum. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And, right, and that's meant to be shocking. It's shocking to our culture. It definitely would have been shocking in this culture. Following that shock comes a second. And the second shock may be greater than the first. Jesus points to a bunch of bumbling disciples. A group of followers who are filled with doubts. They're filled with uncertainties. They doubted who Jesus really was or what he was actually really about. We know that these disciples jostled with each other for recognition. Some of them even got their mums to come in on a ministry trip and chat with Jesus to make sure that John, not mentioning any names, (laughs) Jesus, can you just make sure that my son gets to sit on your right-hand side when you usher in the kingdom? Like they're, they're jostling with each other even over who was the best, who was the greatest, who was the most important. Who would have the most esteem? Eventually we know that pretty much all of them, when the push came to shove, they abandoned Jesus. When when the chips really got down, when things got really tough, they ran. Peter would swear black and blue. I don't even know that man. And Jesus, knowing all of this, He stands in a room in the middle of ministry with his mum outside going, hey, Jesus, I want to come and talk with you. And Jesus does the second shocking thing, which should shock us even more. And he looks at this group of people and he says, you want to see your family? This is my family. These are my people. Can you imagine how they felt that day? Can you imagine what it must have been like to be in that room? It says, lo, Jesus gestured to his disciples. He pointed to them. Everyone in the room knew exactly who he was talking about. 
He pointed them out and he said, there's my family. You want to look at family? Look at them. Imagine if every head turned towards them. Imagine what it must have been like to be a disciple of Jesus that day. To have Jesus pointing at you and telling everyone out there, this is my family. Can you imagine that they might have stood a little taller? Maybe their chin just lifted a little higher. They might have elbowed one another a little bit. Jesus, Jesus called me his brother, right? Jesus called me his sister. Jesus called me his mother. But before we get too excited and start walking around with our chests puffed out and slapping each other on the on the back like grand final champions. Let's just read how Jesus qualifies his statement about what it means to be family. It's found in Matthew 12, verse 50. I'll read it to you in the ESV. So Jesus had just pointed to his bumbling disciples and said, you want to see family? This is my family. And he points to them. And now he qualifies what he means by family. And he says this, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, sister and mother. And if you're listening at all, that should make something inside of you sink a little bit. That changes everything, right? Maybe we shouldn't be slapping each other on the back. Maybe we shouldn't be walking around standing a little taller with our chins held high a little bit, feeling so great about ourselves. Whoever does the will of my Father. All right, that hurts a bit, right? Is, is he serious about that? Because who can live up to that? Who can meet that standard? Who in this room right now can say that they perfectly follow the will of the Father each and every day? I can't. Not by a long shot. So that left me with a question as I was thinking through this. Does that mean that I'm out of the family? If that's what it means to be a mother, brother or sister of Jesus, to be family with Jesus, that I must do the will of the Father who is in heaven. Does it mean then that if I don't, that I can no longer be part of the family, right? Does it mean I'm a, a disowned child? left out in the street to fend for myself. What would Jesus say to that? How did he respond to those around him who were far from perfect and who were far from perfect and knew it? So I want to look at just one event to help us answer that question. It's found in Luke chapter 7 and verse 37. Luke 7 verse 37 says, and behold, lo, 
a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. The story of the nameless woman. Luke doesn't record her name. He just records that she was well known in that city as being a sinner. And he records what her response to Jesus is. Here's a quote. I'm just going to read it from Justin's book, Behold, in chapter 4. You would have read this if you've read your chapter already. It says, returning to Luke's narrative, it should amaze us, it should scream for our attention that Luke begins this little story with, behold, a woman. All right, there's, a, there's a call to take notice of this, followed by a remarkably vague description of the woman. It says, Luke, who wrote this book, the careful technical historian who details geographic locations or political titles, just to remind you how real all of this history actually is, will not mention this woman by name. All you need to know is that she was well known in her own community as a sinner. And you need to know that she somehow shoved her way into a private dinner just to bring her most treasured possession to Jesus and then give him a foot bath with it. We're told to take note of this unnamed woman who approaches Jesus in someone else's house with what is probably her life savings. It's been estimated that a stone jar full of perfume would be equal to about 20 months' wages. It says, pay attention not to the august, socially climbing, well-respected religious leaders who had Jesus over for dinner, but to the nameless prostitute who is humiliating herself by coming in uninvited to wash Jesus' feet with her tears, her hair and her life savings. This is not an everyday currency that this woman brings to Jesus. Although Luke won't name her, he does specify the precious gift that she brings to Jesus. He does this so that we can appreciate this event, which is like cleaning the mud off Jesus' feet with $5,000 bills. That's the point, really. This is not an everyday currency this woman is bringing to Jesus. You didn't go to the grocery store in Jesus' day to buy bread and milk and then pay with an alabaster box full of precious perfume. This was a commodity, a treasure, perhaps even an heirloom. And we're asked to behold this woman. Right? Her name isn't important, but what Jesus says to her and about her is, Simon, religious leader and theologian, not only doubts the woman, but Jesus. He thinks to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he'd know this woman is a sinner. And Jesus, reading his thoughts and proving he is a prophet, explains to Simon that Jesus does know this woman is a sinner. The problem is that Simon doesn't know that Simon is a sinner. This woman's grief over sin 
and love for Jesus is evidence that her sins have been forgiven. Simon's disregard for both her and Jesus is evidence of his hard-heartedness and self-righteousness. Jesus then turns his attention directly to this sinful but repenting woman and assures her that her sins have indeed been forgiven. Through her faith in Jesus, she has been saved. So this is the will of God. And this is what we finish with this morning. What does Jesus mean when he says in Matthew 12 and 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother? Because remember, that's the qualifier for what it means to be in Jesus' family. Here are a few considerations I want you to walk out the door with. First is this, obedience to God matters. And it matters a lot. God's character, his holiness should impress on us a profound weight of the importance of living in light of who God is. God does not look kindly on hypocrites. Never has, never will. That's the first thing we walk out the door with. Second is this, and I need you to listen. If I could be so bold as to rank in importance all of the will of God, I would say this, Foremost in God's desire for you. Foremost in God's desire for you is that you would acknowledge your need for him. What is God's will for me in my life? We ask that question. We often do it when we think about going for a new job. Or what car to buy. Or what colour paint I should paint my house. I wonder what the will of God is in this. Let me tell you the very first thing that God wants for you. He wants you to realise your need for him. The nameless woman, known widely as a sinner, knew her need for Jesus. Simon, the respectable good man, did not. Which of them did the will of God? Which did Jesus embrace as family? Third thing to walk out the door with. Consider the disciples who Jesus pointed at in Matthew chapter 12. The ones who got it so wrong so often. The ones who doubted, misunderstood, who often let Jesus down. That's the thing we say, don't we? I've said it in my prayers. In my heart, I feel like I've just let Jesus down. And yet here he is pointing at them and saying, this is my family. Behold, lo, here are my mother and my brothers. Here is my family. So this morning, I do want you to stand up and I do want you to hold your head up high. I do want you to lift your chin. Jesus looks at you this morning and calls you in Christ through faith. He calls you family. Right? You are family if you know him. But hold your head humbly. Bring your gift Bring your tears, cling to the feet of Jesus, for surely, 
Surely we know just how desperately we need that Redeemer from on old. Don't we? We need him desperately. The will of God for you? To know your need of Jesus. Those who do the will of God, Jesus is proud to point at and say, Behold, this is my family. He loves to include you. Let's pray. Lord, give us courage to bow our knee, to shed our tears, to bring our gift, to bring whatever it may be. The dearest things to us and lay it at your feet. We need you, Jesus, to be our saviour. And Lord, maybe there's someone in this room right now who's never done that. Maybe a bit like Simon. We've stood or sat at that dinner table and we've thought about how right we are, how wrong everybody else is. That we don't need rescuing. Lord, if that's our heart, will you humble it? Will you open our eyes so that we would see just how desperately we need Jesus in our life? in our hearts, in our life, in our future. Lord, let us be a people who are willing to obey the will of the Father, that we would bow our knee to you, Jesus, that we would cling to you as our only hope, our only rescue, that the grace that Jesus offers us would be enough. And then let us stand with him and with joy, See that he points to us of all people and says, this is my brother. This is my sister. This is my mother. This is my family. Lord, what a privilege. And so we cry out to you in the name of Jesus, through faith, Abba, Father. To you be glory and honour and praise for now and forever. Amen.